From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Please Explain. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. It's Thursday, November 2nd. Over the last few days, the war between Israel and Hamas has entered a new stage. The Israeli Defense Force has sent tanks and troops into Gaza. At the same time, rage over civilian deaths is building around the world. But what is the mood on the ground in Israel and in the Palestinian territories? Foreign Affairs and National Security Correspondent Matthew Knott has just returned from spending two weeks in the region. He witnessed ancient hatreds play out and met with countless locals. Today, Matthew joins me to discuss the tensions building on the ground and where this war may go next. So, Matt, you've just spent a couple of weeks traveling around Israel and the West Bank. What was your experience like as a journalist going into a war zone? Was there any part of you that was reluctant to go? I wanted to go because I think this is a big, important story. And I think it's important for our readers and Australians to have as much you know, first-hand reporting as they can. You know, there's lots of great international services there, but I think we should have our own uh, eyes and ears on the ground. I was really lucky to go with Kate Gerrity, the incredible photographer who's a veteran of conflict reporting uh, and, you know, was an expert in how to get as close as you can to the the action without putting yourself or anyone else in danger. It was scary because of the uncertainty when we got on the plane to go to Israel. We were wondering if the ground invasion was going to have started before we even got there and if there would be a way to access Gaza. It was only after the two weeks that we were there that it did start and in a much smaller, more incremental way than people had expected. So, uh, yeah, you, you have to be careful, but ultimately... Uh, particularly for us in Israel and the West Bank. It's nothing like the danger that there is in Gaza right now. What has really stuck with you? Perhaps you can take me through your experiences as Israel first. Mm, it was a really a fascinating and, of course, a distressing time to go to Israel. I'd been there uh, once before in 2016 uh, just for a holiday, obviously took interest in the history of the place and the political situation. But uh, somewhere like Tel Aviv was a very peaceful, cosmopolitan, uh, progressive place, you know, not Unlike somewhere like Sydney, uh, there was no sense that you were in uh, any particular danger there at all. And if you go to Tel Aviv now, it's entirely different. You know, it resembles COVID in terms of most things really being shut down in terms of restaurants and many shops. The air raid sirens are really common now. So pretty much Every night there would be a siren would sound. You'd have about 20, 30 seconds to make your way to the closest shelter and stay there for a few minutes. The Israel has the Iron Dome system, which is very effective at stopping the missiles from coming in. But, you know, one or two have got through even into a place like Tel Aviv. So, for example, people there are really shaken up by this. Uh, gun ownership is soaring in Israel, uh, even in a place like Tel Aviv, because people don't feel very safe. You know, the, this hostages issue, posters everywhere of the the missing hostages, protests by the family members of the hostages. We interviewed several of them who have incredibly moving stories about their grandmother, about their cousin, about their wife and children being abducted into Gaza and, and they don't know where they are. Everyone has some connection. If not a relative themselves, then it's a friend or colleague 
that has either died or, or been abducted. So it's been a, a seismic shock to Israeli society. And of course, you travelled to the south of Israel as well, which is where the October 7 attacks were most extreme. So what was your experience there like? Yeah, that was definitely very confronting. These are communities near the border with Gaza. Um, Some of these are the kibbutzes, you know, that were full of, many of them really are peace-loving, very progressive people. If if anyone in Israeli society, say, favoured a two-state solution and peace with the Palestinians, this was them. Somewhere like Gaza, which had one of the worst uh, massacres, uh, you can still see uh, blood all over the walls, bullet holes, um, just clothes strewn around everywhere. The the vehicles, including uh, paraglider, where the Hamas people came in on, uh, the smell is absolutely uh, rancid uh, and revolting. You know, it is the smell of death there. Uh, we went to the hospital in Beersheba and, and met several uh, survivors, people who had incredible stories of bravery of taking on uh, the Hamas terrorists to protect their town. You know, it took quite a while for the military to get into action. Uh, People were really fending for themselves there. So that's where it's uh, incredibly real down south in Israel. And then, of course, you were in the West Bank. Yes. And of course, uh, Gaza is of such enormous interest uh, right now. It's really impossible for anyone to get in or out, uh, including reporters. So we went to the West Bank, which is relatively uh, easy to access for for foreign journalists. Uh, We did get to speak to quite a few people from Gaza there because there was this program where people from Gaza could go into Israel and had permits to work, about 18,000 people. So say on the day the, the massacres happened, There were thousands of Gazans working in Israel at that moment. Suddenly, everything changes. The border is completely slammed shut. Israel has no interest in letting anyone from Gaza uh, go back there or really allowing them to stay in Israel. So uh, hundreds uh, of Gazans, thousands even, but hundreds that we saw in this particular facility in Ramallah have sought refuge. We went to a recreational center, really a big gym, a basketball court, soccer soccer court field. Uh, and that's where these people are camping out. And, you know, they had uh, terrible stories of not being able to contact their family. Um, I remember speaking to one man uh, whose wife was back in Gaza and relied on a dialysis and lots of people there are now drinking salt water, so very worried about whether she'll be able to survive. Uh, the electricity was starting to run out, so another man said his son was walking an hour every day to find solar panels just to charge up the phone to remain in contact. And you know these men were living in relative safety in the West Bank, although they did really fear that they would be arrested at any moment by the Israeli authorities, which has happened, that they would be part of some kind of potential prisoner swap arrangement with the hostages. Uh, They're completely separated from their families, their, their wives, their children. So some part of them wanted to be back in Gaza, even though it's incredibly dangerous there. And what about the tensions, I guess, between Israelis and Palestinians, particularly in the West Bank. We know in the lead up to October 7th, there was increasing periods of conflict, I guess, between those two groups there. What sort of things did you see on the ground in the West Bank? Yeah, so this was slightly going under the radar. I think in the lead up to October 7 was the situation in the West Bank. 
the Netanyahu government uh, right now, you know, it's, you know, it's considered the most right wing in Israel's history. It has a lot of senior ministers who are big figures in the settler movement in terms of creating new Jewish communities in the West Bank and expanding the ones that are already there. And this has led to an increase in tensions, uh, an increase in deaths uh, in the West Bank, you know, sometimes with uh, Israeli settlers are targeting Palestinians and seemingly often with very little punishment for that uh, in the West Bank. And this has all ramped up a lot after after October 7. While we were there, uh, we went to a protest. They, these are happening regularly in Ramallah. Um, they get very, uh, very uh, fiery. You know, at least eight people were shot. It's on the basically the doorstep of an Israeli settlement, uh, Palestinians throwing rocks at that. And I met a man there. He lives in a village near Ramallah. And he said five years ago, an Israeli settlement popped up there. And there's daily clashes with between the Palestinian locals and the Israeli settlers. A day later, he called up and said, oh, a 16-year-old boy has uh, been shot by a settler and is in hospital. Uh, We went to see him. He said that he and his family were simply uh, picking olives. It's the olive uh, harvesting season there in Palestine and Israel. And they were shot by uh, settlers. Uh, A few days later, uh, our translator rang and said that his cousin had been shot and killed by uh, a settler as well. So this is very common. It's ramping up. Uh, The tensions are really high in the West Bank and many people are watching that incredibly closely. As much as the world's attention is focused on Gaza, there is a possibility that if the tensions get really bad in the West Bank, you know, we'll see another uh, Palestinian uprising and intifada uh, and that would make the situation even worse. We'll be right back. So, Matt, I want to turn to Gaza now because that's where the world's attention is really focused. Can you tell us what's happened there over the last few days? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine that this could happen, but Israel has been really ramping up its its operations in Gaza from the air, but also on the ground. You know, they gave this warning uh, weeks ago about evacuating south saying that they would be concentrating their operations in the north. So, uh, as I said, it started off uh, slower and in a more incremental way than people had imagined the ground invasion. I think people had this image of just tanks rolling over the the border into Gaza, and it's been more smaller incursions now, but it is uh, ramping up in northern Gaza. In the Middle East tonight, Israel targeting Hamas in Gaza and is now carrying out what it called a targeted raid on the ground as fears grow. Vision footage of Israeli tanks in Gaza on the outskirts of Gaza City tonight. You know, some Israeli troops are dying in these ground operations, and then we still see the huge uh, aerial bombardments. It's clear right now they are, they are focusing on the Hamas uh, fighters in the tunnels uh, underneath Gaza. Israel tonight says it killed a senior Hamas commander hours after the military's biggest ground incursion yet into Gaza with armored bulldozers. And We've seen the latest strike uh, on a refugee camp in northern Gaza, uh, which has killed a Hamas commander, but there are estimates of around 50 civilians perhaps being killed. It's obviously hard with the numbers to exactly verify that. That attack on Jabalia refugee camp, the Israelis say that they killed Ibrahim Biari. Now, he was the commander of the Hamas Central Brigade, a very but, you know, So we're seeing a huge amount of civilians being killed for each 
Hamas combatant. But the cost of doing that appears to have been extraordinary. Many people killed and injured. And you know, we're over 8,500, uh, the latest count of people in Gaza being killed. And that's only going to increase. You know, Israel is showing no sign that they want to comply with growing international calls for a ceasefire or even a pause in hostilities. And I guess, what was the mood on the ground in Israel or even in the West Bank regarding a possible ceasefire? We know that Australia abstained from the recent UN vote on a resolution to call for one. So what were you hearing from people? The mood in Israel across the left and the right, you know, Israel has a a very lively, a very diverse range of uh, political parties and political opinions. Uh, There is really strong unity, though, that whatever needs to be done needs to be done to uh, take out Hamas and ensure that Hamas cannot govern in Gaza anymore. Uh, People don't all welcome uh, civilian casualties. Most people don't, although there is uh, a strong desire for revenge and some people are so angry that they say they want people to be killed there. That's not everybody. Uh, But yeah, even even politicians more of the left say that you can't risk the opportunity of Hamas using any kind of ceasefire to rearm, to allow themselves to regroup, uh, that that Israel really has to do whatever it takes. That's a strong view in Israeli society. In the, in the West Bank, there's a lot of anger at Israel. Uh, the, what I was finding speaking to people was that whether they were Hamas or Fatah, which is the more moderate party that governs in the West Bank, uh, overwhelmingly they, they were angry at Israel. You know, they see this as part of a longer uh, narrative, you know, going back at least 75 years to the state of Israel. They don't see this as starting on October 7. You know, they, they see this as part of is- Israeli occupation and uh, they're, they're very worried about uh, their fellow Palestinians in, in Gaza. So they would want uh, a ceasefire immediately. And so you mentioned there that there were some voices, I believe, within Israel saying they wanted revenge and actually they did want to see people die in Gaza. So who were you hearing saying those sorts of things? Uh, For example, the the person I'm particularly thinking of, we went to the right to the border as close as you could get to see uh, Israelis firing into Gaza. Uh, Sterod is the the name of the town in uh, southern Israel. Uh, And we encountered a man there who was lived in the town. He worked as a prison officer. The town is evacuated, basically, but he was coming to uh, sit on top of an abandoned childcare centre to watch the fighting. It was as if he was coming to watch a TV show. Later later in the day, he was going home to watch the soccer on TV, a, a Spanish soccer match, but then he would come back and he would watch throughout the night as if it was a TV show, The Hostilities. And he was so uh, angry. He said, you know, Hamas killed our children. They butchered our babies. We should butcher their babies. Just wipe them all out. Uh, it was it was very strong language. And I don't think he's alone. I'm not saying he speaks for everyone. Um, some people in Israel are concerned about this. But for example, you're not seeing the type of protests that you're seeing around the world about this. You're not seeing that in Israel at all. Uh, there's there's only started to be some very, very small and minor protests, uh, you know, against the number of people being killed in Gaza. And so what do you think this all means for the two-state solution? I mean, is this ground incursion that's just happened, has it, has it killed it? 
Well, the first thing to say is that it wasn't going very well already for at least a couple of decades. The two-state solution uh, was really going nowhere, despite many efforts to try and resuscitate it. It, it was most generously, you could say it was on life support, uh, this, this idea. You know, it's been many missed opportunities over history from both sides, including the Palestinian side. Uh, the government uh, that's in power right now is absolutely not inclined to any kind of uh, Palestinian statehood. The expansion of uh, settlements in the West Bank really makes that difficult. You've now got over 500,000 Israelis living in the West Bank. The question is, if that's going to be a Palestinian state, is it really feasible to get all or you know, even most of them out and back into to Israel? And this this war and the October 7 tax has made it even harder. You know, I spoke to Israelis who said, this just shows we absolutely can't give Palestinians a state. We should never have withdrawn from Gaza in the first place, you know, in the mid-2000s. Same thing in Palestine, actually. You know, some people there have given up hope that they're ever going to get a state. There's a lot of discussion about the potential of a one-state solution in which you have one state, but people have very different ideas about that. You know, I spoke to an Israeli settler uh, near Hebron, who says we need to have one state, greater Israel, you know, it would encompass the the West Bank as well, uh, and Palestinian people would have uh, limited citizenship rights. For example, they wouldn't be able to vote. You know, this is very important to Israel because they want to remain a Jewish majority state. If too many uh, Palestinians are allowed to become citizens and vote, they say the whole nature of the country will be changed. That's the demographic situation they're trying to avoid. Um, some Palestinians are also saying, well, look, we're going to have to be part of one state uh, and they favour much more equal footing with Israelis. Uh, of course, there's still strong arguments for a two-state solution, but it's not really going anywhere and it's hard to imagine it going anywhere in the short term. So I guess to wrap up, where do you see this going next? You've got a really unique vantage point on this because you've, of course, just been on the ground and you've seen ancient hatreds play out between Israelis and Palestinian people. Do you have any feelings about where this could go next? I think it's going to go on for a long time. You know, this isn't going to be a short war that's over in a few weeks and resolved. There are a few big issues that still remain to be solved. The question of what happens in Gaza if Israel does manage to take complete control. Um, Hamas will still be there in some form. Many people we spoke to, including in the West Bank, you know, they say Hamas is really an idea. It's this idea of, you know, a very religious but also nationalistic party. You can wipe out the commanders, but there's still going to be a desire in parts of Palestinian for society for a more militant approach towards Israel. That's not going to go away. Will other regional countries want or be able to come in and play a role in Gaza at all? Israeli politicians we spoke to there, you know, are very reluctant to go into that. I know they do have plans that they're not divulging right now. The question of what happens the day after, this is obviously relevant. We saw this with America after the September 11 attacks is it's one thing to go into a place like Iraq. What happens after you depose the leadership that's there. Things can actually get worse in the long in the long term. You know, Israel has decided to take a very expansionist, uh, you know, maximalist approach to the way they're responding to this. They're not doing it as a strict counterterrorism operation to try and go in surgically and get 
the, as many Hamas leaders out as possible. You know, they're talking about the axis of evil with Iran and Hezbollah. You know, there, there are real fears about whether this will expand even further to other countries, drawing in countries across the Middle East. I spoke to a, a member of the Knesset who said, you know, we, we're probably witnessing here the start of an Iran-America war, which would really be a world war. Um, I think many people would hope that doesn't happen. What's happening now is already bad enough. But I, I think the sad reality is things are going to get worse before they perhaps get better. Matt, we've been so lucky over the last couple of weeks to have your clear-eyed reporting from the region itself. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And thank you for people for subscribing and reading. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Julia Carcatzel with technical assistance by David McMillan. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the City Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. This is Please Explain. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.